Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Our chance every week to catch up on the latest political news today. Joining us, Wayne Moyer, professor of politics, chair of policy studies at Grinnell College. Hello, Wayne. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Sarah Mitchell is with us as well, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Good to be back. Good to have you and good to have our listeners. We also enjoy, of course, during Politics Wednesday to have our listeners join our conversation as we survey half a dozen um, uh, political news items, uh, domestic but also foreign policy uh, this week because uh, Sarah and Wayne both have uh, foreign policy uh, political expertise. one 780 9100 one 780 Later, we'll ask them about their thoughts on Iowa's most competitive congressional races and There are three of them, uh, according to the polling. Uh, Also, their reading of the national polls. Now we are less than uh, two weeks uh, before Election Day. Then we'll go abroad and and talk about the happenings in the U.K. as uh, Britain's third prime minister in two months seeks to stabilize uh, the financial situation there in the U.K. And uh, we heard in our news uh, Russia rehearsing its uh, response to a nuclear attack as Those tensions rise over the dirty bomb allegations. That's uh, all to come. But first, let's talk about a new Iowa poll out today. Most Iowans now hold an unfavorable view of Donald Trump. And this is a shift. Uh, Think back to the former president's high favorably rating, high favorably rating as as, uh, soon as uh, late last fall. This is a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll finding his unfavorability up to 52% of Iowans saying their feelings toward Trump are very or mostly unfavorable. Uh, That's up from 45% who said so in September of 2021. And and then there's also a favorability drop in this poll. The number of Iowans who say their feelings toward Trump are very or mostly favorable has dropped to 46%, down from 53% in September of 2021 in the same poll. Um, he, uh, Of course, we're talking about the ex-president. He's been out of office for some time, but his uh, potential 2024 candidacy looms over the presidential, uh, the Republican primary field, uh, other GOP contenders already visiting Iowa in anticipation of the first-in-the-nation caucuses, the Republican caucuses, staying the way they have been in the past. Uh, Wayne, let's start with you. How significant is this new poll shift? I think it's hard to say right now. Uh, There's been quite a bit of fluctuation in the past, uh, within a range of four or five points up and down for Trump. Uh, At the moment, this looks uh, negative. It looks like it might possibly hurt uh, some of the candidates that he's endorsed in the election. But uh, I would be careful to read too much in it too quickly. It may be that the the January 6th investigation findings are catching on or the the court cases that Trump is facing are catching on. 
but I think it's too soon to be very definitive about the effects. Sarah, do you see it the same way? Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to see what the independent trend was going back in time because independence in Iowa only at 40% favorability for Trump, which strikes me as pretty low. Um, so, you know, 83% Republican uh, favorability and 7% Democrat, which is not surprising. But but I do think if more more people in the middle uh, shift toward an unfavorable position, then that could be problematic for Trump. And yeah, I agree that the January 6th committee hearings being um, televised along with, you know, Trump's legal woes are in the news every day. So it's pretty hard yeah. to, to watch the news without seeing of this, you know, constant barrage of stories about all the various fronts on which he's being, uh, you know, uh, prosecuted or charged with various things. Right. Um, and while we're on the point of January 6th, Sarah, how do you evaluate the work of this committee now that it's it's had its uh, what we think is its final public hearing? Um, the work itself that it's done um, and the, the question we always ask in connection with it, will it matter much? Well, I, I think they did a good job of laying out, you know, tell, the, the way that the narrative was laid out. I think they did a good job. So at the beginning of the hearings, they, you know, put together the pieces of evidence that they were going to cover in the various hearings. So they gave a preview of what was to come. And then each of the subsequent hearings uh, went went into more detail on each of those points. And then they did the sort of same thing at the end where they came back and, and told a larger narrative about what was happening. And I do think we have seen uh, the Justice Department, uh, you know, engaged in, you know, questioning of more people in Trump's orbit, um, like his his attorney, um, Patel. Um, so I, I did, it does seem that the, the Justice Department is being a little more proactive in, in um, at least questioning people around very, a lot of these different activities surrounding January 6th. So, so I think in that regard, you know, people were critical before of Merrick Garland not to not seeming to be taking much action, and it it, it appears that that's changing. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about we have numerous investigations um, having to do with the former president and and developments there as well, away from that January sixth committee. Now, um, on Monday of this week, um, the Chief um, um, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas temporarily shielded Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina from having to answer questions from a special grand jury in Georgia investigating efforts to overturn former uh, President Trump's election loss in that state. Uh, this is a brief administrative stay. Um, then today, Mark Meadows, the former a White House chief of staff, uh, deeply involved in efforts to keep former President Trump in power after that election, ordered to travel to Atlanta to testify in a, that same criminal investigation into election uh, meddling. Wayne, what do you see as the significance there? It's, it's hard to keep track of all the investigations, isn't it? Yeah, well, it certainly is. And uh, these witnesses are, of course, very important in making the case about uh, Trump intervening in the Georgia election. The Lindsey Graham case is, I think, really interesting because I think he's making the argument that the things he did after the election were consistent with his work on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And, uh, but a lot of things that he's been uh, alleged 
to have done, it would be very difficult to see as part of, uh, in terms of cajoling people to say the election was stolen. It would be hard to to see as as part of foreign relations committee work. But it'll be very interesting to see how this one plays out in the courts. Mm-hmm. Sarah, comments on Lindsey Graham's story or Mark Meadows as well? Well, I think it's, first of all, is a question of whether Clarence Thomas should have recused himself given his wife's role in all of this. So I've, I've seen a lot of discussion about that. Uh, but also, you know, there's a constitutional aspect of this because the the 11th, the 11th Circuit, right, had refused to block the trial judge's ruling that Graham could be required to answer some but not all questions. And it was relating to the Constitution speech or debate clause saying that, uh, you know, like a senator would not be questioned in any other place. But but the district court said that that wouldn't apply to Graham's, you know, communications with with Trump people in Trump's orbit or, you know, any public statements he made about the election or, or if he did make efforts to try to cajole Georgia election officials. So so the what uh, Thomas is doing is essentially uh, putting that district court action on administrative stay so that that would give um, Lindsey Graham time to like proceed with his emergency application to prevent it from being questioned. So, so, you know, Thomas is, is essentially just giving Graham more time to make his case here. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, the Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College. We invite you to join us. Uh, with these two political scientists, uh, with your questions, one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Well, we're two weeks away, less than two weeks away from the midterm election day. Of course, early voting uh, continuing until the day before uh, the elections. Um, if you have a, a a ballot, an absentee ballot, uh, make sure you mail that in so it does get in uh, to be counted uh, by the end of November 8th. Let's uh, talk about where, Sarah, you and Wayne see uh, the congressional races in Iowa, the most competitive ones. Now, we have to remind ourselves that uh, Republicans uh, need only net five more seats in the U.S. House. Uh, they will then would then take uh, retake the majority, uh, and of course, then Iowa's congressional races could be key in determining which party holds power. Let me quote the New York Times' uh, Nate Cohn uh, there in in his uh, latest article: If these poll results keep up, expect anything on election night. The current range of numbers could translate to a Democratic hold in the Senate or an overall Republican. Route. Uh, start us off, Sarah. What are you seeing in the latest polling specifically for Iowa's congressional races and fitting it into the overall national context? Okay, well, maybe I'll start with the national context and then we can swing back to right. the Iowa races. Um, sure. Well, first of all, uh, I guess if you're a Democrat, you should set your expectations on losses because that, that is the norm, right? So there's been 19 midterm elections since World War II, and the the party you know who holds the presidency has lost on average 27 House seats and three and a half Senate seats. So that's that's the historical context. Now, if you look at specific political science models, um, John Sides, who's a professor at Vanderbilt, had a good uh, Twitter discussion of all the different political science models. 
um, you know, here the expectation based on these models is probably somewhere in the range of Dems losing 40 to 45 House seats and one to three Senate seats. Now, I think the most optimistic of those estimates comes from Alan Abramovitz. So his uh, prediction is at 16 House losses and zero losses potentially for the Democrats in the Senate. And that's pretty similar to 538's um, prediction based on, uh, you know, aggregation of, of polling and doing simulations for those races. Um, but, I, but I think in general, we should expect to see a loss for the Democrats in the House and, and the Senate's very close. Um, the factors that, mm -hmm. of course, are negative for the Democrats right now have to do with Biden's uh, relatively low approval, although it's sort of increased in the last couple of months, uh, the generic ballot has moved in the direction of the GOP. So who, which party people want to vote for in general. And then, of course, the inflation and gas prices narratives are going against Democrats. But on the positive, Democratic candidates have raised more money than Republican candidates. Uh, so $1.6 billion for Democrats versus $1.4 billion for Republicans. And the abortion issue has, in fact, led to a big increase in, uh, you know, female voter registration, especially young women. Um, and the Democrats, on average, are running more experienced political candidates. So I think that's why Nate Cohn's saying we don't know exactly how this is going to play yeah. out, at least on the Senate side. Um, but I, I would expect let, let me, the let, House to be lost. Yeah. Sarah, uh, before I ask each of you to, to zoom in on a specific congressional race here in Iowa, let me get Wayne's answer on that same thing. Do you agree with uh, the polling data that share, uh, Sarah has j just shared, uh, Wayne? You I agree in part. Certainly the Senate race is, is very difficult to call. Certainly the trend is going uh, to the Republicans in the House. I think there's some un a big uncertainties, though. Inflation is high, but employment is high. And, 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 and to what extent will high employment make a difference? Uh, the abortion issue is, is clearly a, a important. So uh, I, I understand the uncertainty, and, the, and uh, it, could be, it could be very close but it could be a, a, a big Republican uh, uh, go very very much in the Republican direction. Okay, let's uh, listen to the the president uh, today. We, um, more steps to tackle inflation. Of course, he's identifying the number one concern of many Americans. And today, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued guidance about two junk fee practices that are likely unfair and unlawful under existing law. These are surprise overdraft fees and the practice of indiscriminately charging depositor fees to every person who deposits a check that bounces. Now, Biden gave his remarks this morning on that announcement, stating that the Biden-Harris administration has already pushed banks to reduce the fees they charge customers across the board. He stated that 15 of the nation's 20 largest banks are getting rid of the bounce checks charges entirely, and are working to lower prices and increase competition across the whole economy. Let's listen. Because when companies compete, products get better, prices go down, wages go up. We encourage innovation when that occurs. And America leads the world. It's called capitalism. I've said it before, capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It's exploitation. 
Folks, there are two very different ways of looking at our country. One is, as I've said before, the view from Park Avenue, which says, help the wealthy, and maybe that'll trickle down to everyone in the country. The other is from Scranton or Claymont or thousands of cities across the country, like the place I grew up. The benefit and the belief that the backbone of America are people who get up every morning and work for a living, put on their shoes, get out of bed, and go to work. The middle class, they're the ones who built this country. That's who our country should work for. And we're going to keep taking concrete actions like this. You're going to hear more from me on this to make sure it does. And when it go, when it does, not only are they going to do well, the wealthy will do very well as well. President Biden earlier today. Let's uh, talk about some of the races. Uh, uh, Wayne, let's start with you there in Grinnell. And I'm looking at a map of our new congressional districts, and I can't quite see if, if uh, Grinnell is in the first or the third district now. But <laughs> the uh, a reminder that I'll be talking think, with Cindy Axley. Fir- I think we're in the first. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll be talking with Cindy Axney, of course, the incumbent uh, uh, in that seat. She's a two-term uh, Democrat running for her third term against uh, Republican State Senator uh, Zach Nunn. And uh, Wayne, t- take a crack at the third district, uh, I- if you would. That's seen as uh, one of the uh, possibilities for Republicans to flip it into their column. Um. Well, it, it, there's, a, there's a possibility, but I'm, I'm, um, I, I, I mean, there, this, I think it's very hard to, to predict what is going to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how, again, which, which of the factors is going to be most important uh, in, in the election? It's, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to predict either one is likely to win at this stage. I mean, I, I think the, the fourth district is pretty clearly going to be Republican, but I think the other three are, are it's not at all clear how they're going to come out. Sarah, what I've seen is um, the third district uh, likely Republican or lean Republican or toss up. What are you seeing in the third district? How are you reading those polls? Yeah, well, 538 is showing that probably every seat in Iowa is going to go Republican. Um, you know, even the none uh, probability they have at 62 out of 100 chance of winning. They've got Miller Meeks at 93 out of 100, Henson at 92, and Feenstra at 99 out of 100 chances. So I think, first of all, uh, you know, if all of our, you know, major political seats go Republican, which is the direction we've moved since Obama was president, um, you know, it, it's I, I just can't imagine Democrats thinking it's reasonable, right, for Iowa to be first uh, anymore for the caucuses. I, I actually would, even as an Iowan, I would not like to see that go away. But I, I think, you know, Democrats just can't justify coming here first if that's what the state is going to choose for for its, you know, we're, we're not even competitive anymore if that's where we're going. Um, and mm-hmm. then second of all, on this on this economic narrative, you know, if you look at the data going back to Truman, when a Democrat is president, we have economic growth rates averaging 4.6%. And when a Republican is president, we have growth rates averaging 2.8%. So, you know, the data show very clearly when Biden is putting up these two models, right, of economic, how do you s- sustain better economic growth? 
that the democratic strategy does do better historically. And I don't know why, uh, you know, the trickle down narrative is the one that that people seem to believe, or maybe it's just because the tax cuts are felt directly. But but the truth is that the overall economy does do better uh, when you actually have the government spending and investing in in the economy and all of the stuff that's going to happen through the Inflation Reduction Act will be huge investments in, you know, American manufacturing for things like, you know, electric car batteries, you know, lots of different things and an, and a huge investment in climate change. And the, the most recent poll is showing that 60 some percent of Americans think we're not doing enough on climate change. So that's another area where, again, maybe the Democratic narrative is not strong enough on what what they've actually passed in the Inflation Reduction Act with respect to uh, addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, in the minute or so we have left, comment on the candidates challenge the incumbents in, in eastern Iowa in the new first and the new second there. Uh, we have uh, State Senator Liz Mathis um, uh, trying to unseat uh, Ashley Hinson, the incumbent there. And then uh, we have uh, Christina Bohannon trying to unseat Marionette Miller-Meeks. Have they been um, strong candidates in your view? Yeah, I think both are, are reasonably strong candidates. And, you know, I think um, Bohannon, uh, you know, I, I've, I've seen, um, I don't know, I, I've seen some ads and some yard signs, but maybe not as strong as I'm expecting for that race. Now, maybe it's just because where I live, <laughs> but maybe I need to drive to other parts of the, uh, of the <laughs> area to, to see more yard signs. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I I don't know. I haven't. I, I didn't get a chance to watch uh, any of the the was there a Henson Mathis debate, right? I don't think I I saw. I I didn't mm-hmm. see that. But so maybe Wayne has more information about that that one. Quickly, Wayne, we've got to go in a second. If you had something to add, Wayne. No, I I I I think they're both strong candidates. Uh, and, uh, whether they're strong enough to win, it's, it's not clear. Okay. We'll take a short break and be back with Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College. We've determined that Grinnell is in Powasheet County, part of the 2nd District. It has a little tongue of the 2nd District, which is the northeastern part of the state that reaches down evidently into uh, Powasheet County. So, yes, getting used to our new congressional maps. Uh, uh, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk, we'll go um, to some foreign policy, talk about Well, Britain's third prime minister in two months seeking to stabilize things over there financially. Also, Russia uh, and those dirty bomb allegations. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100. Politics Wednesday with Wayne Moyer and Sarah Mitchell. Back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles, featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
We're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Two weeks, uh, less than two weeks before Election Day for the 2022 midterms. Early voting going on uh, now. Our analysts, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College. And uh, this is a day when jurors, uh, we heard in the news in Michigan, convicted three men of aiding a, a plot to kidnap that state's Democratic governor in 2020, a case, a case that grew out of a domestic terrorism investigation. Uh, let me share this bit of audio with you. Yesterday, the Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito um, said in remarks at the Heritage Foundation that the leak of the draft opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade was, in his words, a great betrayal of trust by somebody and made justices thought to be in the majority of support of overruling Roe um, the, uh, and Casey uh, targeted for assassination. He referred to Nicholas John Rosk, who pleaded not guilty to trying to kill Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh after being uh, arrested in uh, last June. Let's hear some of his comments. That was last term. Um, now we're, we're in a new term. I think that all of us want to, all of the justices, and I think the people who work in the building, we have wonderful staff, um, I'll add that, want things to get back to normal, uh, the way they were before all this last term, before COVID, get back to normal to the greatest degree possible. And uh, that's what we hope will happen. And I think everybody is working on that. Okay. Also, let's add to that uh, poll workers now across the country, in many cases, feeling uh, threatened with political violence. Uh, Sarah, Remind us, what has driven this uptick in violence or threatened violence? It didn't used to be this way a few years ago. Uh, we draw have to draw a line back to the hyper-partisan and um, sometimes violent rhetoric? Yep, definitely. When political leaders uh, condone and use violent rhetoric, it has an effect on their followers. Um, we've certainly seen, if you look at data on domestic terrorist attacks, that they've the number of terrorist attacks carried out in the U.S. by group, you know, extreme right groups has increased dramatically since Trump was president. Um, so we've definitely, you know, the election violence is a, the latest iteration of this. Um, so it's, you know, almost always carried out by uh, right wing, uh, you know, individuals. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I would say to Justice Alito, if you care about protecting the integrity of Supreme Court justices to do their jobs, and you should also protect the ability of Congress to certify an election and not be threatened with violence, and the ability of election workers, who in most cases are volunteering their time, to be protected as well. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to what you mentioned in the in the first half hour. Um, the we we don't know how things will turn out. Polls can tell us many things, but uh, we could have anywhere from perhaps three, perhaps four seats in the in the hands of the Democrats uh, uh, in our uh, con congressional delegation, all the way to having a clean sweep by the Republicans, all six seats in the hands of Republicans. Uh, Wayne, start us off with what are the implications of the GOP taking back one or both chambers? What uh, do you expect the next two years, 2023, 2024, to look like uh, and feel like in, in a different way than they are now in Washington? 
well, it will make a difference whether they take both houses back or they just take the house back. Uh, but I think one thing that will happen uh, if, if, if the Republicans take the House is there will we'll have increasing budget crises. Uh, deadlines will pass where bills will have to be passed, and it'll be very difficult to pass the uh, budget bills. The uh, Biden administration will have extreme difficulty in getting any kind of new initiatives through. Um, um, and and uh, we'll have tr- trouble defending uh, funding uh, for his own programs and have trouble defending his own budget. Um, uh, it seems to me that uh, we, we won't expect much in the way of new legislation um, if the Republicans gain control of, of either House of Congress. Um, um, certainly in terms of new initiatives on climate change, I don't think that we'll see very much. Um, um, so I, I look for a period, if, if the Republicans gain either, either, either House, a period of stagnation, not much will happen. Mm-hmm. Sarah, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, definitely, well, I was going to joke that there'll probably be a Hunter Biden investigation, <laughs> that we'll probably be seeing that in the House, uh, but I'm n- not really joking there, uh, maybe, uh, but the, um, I think I definitely agree on the budget. We've already seen uh, Republican leadership say that they will use the, you know, debt ceiling or the budget as a as an, a, a means to obstruct the Biden administration. Um, we've also seen they've been much more open about their plans to uh, to uh, go after Social Security and Medicare, which seems surprising to me in terms of how public they've been about that. So uh, talking about raising the minimum uh, retirement age uh, beyond what it is now. Um, talking about cutting benefits for people above certain income levels. Um, so I think that that you know whether they proceed with that is going to be interesting because a lot of their older voting base is not going to approve of that. Um, so so I think that that's a kind of interesting thing to watch. Um, yeah, I, I suspect, um, you know, we've seen six governors, including Reynolds, uh, try to stop Biden's plan to forgive student loan debt. Um, so I suspect that if they control both chambers, they will try to enact a bill to prevent that from happening. Um, so that will obviously affect a lot of people in Iowa who have student loan debt and could get relief um, from that program. Um, and yeah, and I suspect they will try to roll back, um, you know, some of the things that were enacted through the Inflation Reduction Act, including on climate change, um, especially if they gain control of the Senate as well. So it really depends if the Democrats can maintain the Senate, then I think uh, probably we usually get somewhat productive output out of divided, uh, you know, divided government. So so it could be a positive in some way, but if you look back historically, but um, but I guess we, we won't know until we see what happens with these close Senate seats. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, we'll be providing um, election night coverage. I'll anchor that coverage on November uh, 8th. And um, 
So let's um, set aside uh, set aside some domestic politics here with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, and uh, rely on their um, expertise in foreign policy in the political science uh, department there. Let's turn to some news. Uh, let's go to the U.K. Yesterday, um, uh, Rishi Sunak gave his first address uh, as Britain's new prime minister in front of 10 Downing Street. He is Britain's third prime minister this year, the first person of color, first Hindu to lead Britain following Liz Truss's resignation amid economic crisis, the lingering aftermath of COVID and the effects of the Russian war in Ukraine. Sunak stated that Truss was, quote, not wrong to want to improve growth in this country, but uh, some mistakes were made, he said, and his work to fix them begins immediately. I will unite our country, not with words, but with action. I will work day in and day out to deliver for you. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. Britain's new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, have to get used to that name, rolling off the tongue. Wayne, and perhaps you as well, uh, talk about what's been happening in Britain with the third Prime Minister in two months and the challenges facing the new one. Well, uh, essentially, the, the last Prime Minister uh, proposed a budget that decreased taxes on the wealthy uh, and uh, uh, would, would have created a large budget deficit which the, uh, and didn't coordinate it with the economic authorities and the pound collapsed almost to the level of the dollar. Uh, and then, of course, that began a process that led to uh, Prime Minister Truss's resignation. The new Prime Minister has enormous challenges You've got a high rate of inflation. The economy's not doing very well. Uh, conservative support among the public has tanked, uh, lowest ever. Uh, so whether he will be able to build public support uh, for anything, uh, it seems to me, is very questionable. He also faces, faces the possibility of, an, of another Scottish independence referendum, um, uh, he has problems in terms of, of Northern Ireland and, and um, uh, keeping uh, Northern Ireland uh, so that it can uh, continue to uh, trade freely with the rest of Ireland uh, and, uh, and, and stay within the EU zone, so to speak, without being in the EU. Uh, so I think his problems are, are incredibly difficult. Uh, and he doesn't have to call an election for two years. Uh, and so it'll be quite interesting to see what happens. Yeah, there are elections in that parliamentary system different than ours. The, the prime ministers of the ruling party have a, a window uh, in which they can call um, elections. Sarah, your comment on the situation in the U.K.? 
Yeah, I guess we'll see if a former Goldman Sachs hedge fund boss <laughs> can do <laughs> right. better, right? <laughs> and so he's, you know, one of the richest men in parliament. Uh, and so, you know, I think people thought he has a sort of business chops there. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's got a $45 billion hole in public finance uh, that he needs to deal with, not only because of economic slowdown, inflation, but also the you know, higher borrowing costs. So one of the negative effects of when the pound is devalued, right, is any uh, debt that's owed because the government's been borrowing, you know, over 20 million pounds a year for the last couple of years. Um, so the, those debt costs get much larger when the pound drops like that. Um, and so the central bank uh, has, of course, talked about increasing um, interest rates in response, just like we've seen in the U.S., right? The, the Federal Reserve has increased the, the federal funds lending rate um, to banks in the last three meetings um, and will probably do so again in the next two. So all of these countries are dealing, you know, trying to deal with um, high inflation, but also at the same time, um, yeah, trying to address you know, Britain has the added problem of having made a decision to leave the European Union, and, and there's a lot of negative consequences from that. So the the Northern Ireland border uh, that Wayne was mentioning, you know, essentially w when the EU existed, that was a free-flowing border. So you could go from Northern Ireland to Ireland, and that includes trucks, right, that are moving things across the border. Well, the EU has tried to negotiate to make that more of a hard border where you'd actually have to get inspected if you were driving a truck of goods, you know, from the UK to Ireland. And so that's not only going to cause a lot of economic woes for, you know, because it delays the delivery of exports, but also uh, it it's not favored by groups like Sinn Féin who, who, you know, want, in terms of Irish unity, they don't like the idea of, of putting structures back on that border, right? Um, and so, so yeah, I think, uh, and and uh, Sunak has not been clear about how he's going to deal with that, the Northern Ireland or other or these other hotbed issues. Uh, so, so I guess we'll see what happens. In the final five minutes of our program, uh, let's uh, shift to, to continental Europe and the war, largest land war going on since the Second World War in Ukraine after Russia's invasion eight months ago on February 24th. Uh, yesterday, President Biden responded to a question from a reporter who asked about Russia's allegation that Ukraine was planning to deploy nuclear weapons or a dirty bomb on its own territory Um in uh, and place the blame on uh, Russia. Biden commented on whether this is the start of a so-called false flag operation and if Russia itself is preparing a dirty bomb or nuclear weapon. Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if we're to use a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not guaranteeing you that it's a false flag operation yet. Don't know. But uh, it would be a serious, serious mistake. Okay, we have to make sure we understand here the difference between a dirty bomb and a 
uh, what he mentioned, a tactical nuclear weapon. A dirty bomb is a conventional explosive that spreads radioactive waste, so to speak, over an area. Wayne, um, alarming uh, to think about, uh, to hear discussed here, but we've been talking about it for months since his invasion, and, and Putin's reiterating that uh, today a- as well. What do you make over the of these uh, claims by Putin over the last few days? Well, the Russian army is doing very poorly, and the Ukrainian army is doing very well. And so there's a sense that um, if for Russia uh, to do anything, is uh, they'll have to escalate the war. So they'll need an excuse to escalate. And, uh, and, that, and of course, there's a question of how they'll escalate. Well, one possible excuse would be is that the Ukrainians are doing something provocative. And the, uh, if... if and I think what Putin is trying to say is the Ukrainians are building a dirty bomb, or maybe I don't think he thinks they have the capability to build an atomic bomb, but build a dirty bomb, and if they and and use that as a justification to escalate what the Soviets are doing. Now, does that mean an atomic the Soviets using an atomic bomb, or does it mean the Soviet uh, Russia? I keep saying Soviets, but Ru- Russians use. Um, uh, 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 um, chemical weapons, uh, for instance, um, but um, Russia's not been able to, to succeed using conventional warfare. So they have some incentive to escalate. And, and I'm sure what the president suspects is that they're using this dirty bomb story to provide themselves with a, themselves with a rationale for, expl- for escalation. Right. And, and that's where the term false flag comes into to yes. do something one one country does something but then wants to blame it on another country uh, to get the support uh, sarah your reading of this situation well i think the biden administration has handled this well they, they've done this before in terms of calling out russia's potential false flag operation so earlier in the war uh, or even before the war began, they were predicting that that they were going to claim that there were these mass atrocities, you know, being committed by Ukrainians against Russians living in those areas, the contested areas. Um, and so um, the Biden administration and, and our allies, Britain and France, you know, they've consistently been putting out information, like if they think the Russians are going to do something with false flag operations, they've, they've done a good job of of sort of getting ahead of it um, before they take action. Um, I think the, you know, the drone attacks uh, that took out quite a bit of Ukraine's energy sector, uh, that was a significant attack by the Russians in response to the the taking out of the Kerch Strait Bridge by Ukraine, um, which is like the main uh, sort of land supply into Crimea. Um, I think, yeah, the Ukrainians have also uh, made uh, you know, they they've um, they're being more successful on the ground in Kherson, so that's why uh, we've seen seventy thousand plus civilians being uh, evacuated back from that area. So, so I think the ground war is still obviously favoring Ukraine, but in terms of what Russia is willing to do, uh, those drone attacks maybe are, are showing, uh, you know, that they're they're going to start expanding the strategies that they're going to use uh, to try to to get you know, to sort of push back against these Ukraine wins. 
Yeah. And and finally, your comments on how this is being received by Congress. We've seen for the second time in a week members of Congress uh, signaling a potential shift in our policy towards Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We had last week House Minority Leader Republican Kevin McCarthy said that a GOP-controlled Congress next year might withhold funding from Ukraine. Then on Monday of this week, a 30-member uh, Liberal House uh, Democrat, um, uh, the, the Progressive uh, Caucus, I guess, called on President Biden to engage in direct diplomacy with Russia. That drew some harsh backlash, then a retraction. Um, the uh, chair of that Progressive Caucus, uh, uh, Jayapal of Washington, announcing that she'd retracted the letter she that she spearheaded just 24 hours before. Um, she said it was drafted several months ago. It had not been vetted. Anyway, uh, Wayne, quickly, what do you see happening here? A softening of support for Ukraine? I- inevitable? Uh, I, I think it depends on the party. There is a segment of uh, Republicans, and I, th- I don't think it's a majority of the Republicans, uh, that is not very sympathetic toward Ukraine, very, very close to Trump. And th- I think their support is, 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 is weakening. I don't think the Democrats' support is weakening at all. Uh, and I, I think the fear there is a war escalating, and that's why the, the group on the left was asking for, for negotiations. But I think the support is solid. I think also the outrages, uh, human rights outrages of the Russians is going to make it very hard uh, to build opposition to support uh, for Ukraine in Congress. 30 seconds for you on that matter, Sarah, before we end. Well, I've said it before, these threats to territorial integrity, we can't let them stand because we're just going to see countries all over the world starting to take territory <laughs> if if nato and uh, doesn't respond to this so uh, or, or you know convince russia to not expand their their operations to other areas of the former soviet union sarah mitchell and wayne moyer thank you so much for your analysis uh, sarah mitchell of the university of iowa wayne moyer of grinnell college until next time until after the election in your case thank you for participating Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Tomorrow on the program, uh, my conversation with incumbent Congresswoman Cindy Axney. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River. Hope you'll tune in again.